This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Previously on Colors. Jamie Stockwell is a deputy editor with the New York Times National Desk. She also oversees a newsletter called Race Related. You know, what we want to do in, in Race Related is go beyond the conversations about black and white and tensions in, in those racial groups across America and also like look more deeply and with it's very nuanced and, and complex, but looking at the role of ethnicity and identity and how they all intersect. Coming up in this episode of Colors. The British royal family racism scandal. Kahindi Andrews is the author of The New Age of Empire, How Racism and Colonialism Still Rule the World. Andrews is a professor of black studies at the Birmingham City University, and he says Meghan Markle's experience was not unique. And the real issue is, like, what does the monarchy mean? What does it represent? And, you know, for what it represents is really in popular culture, like today, a very direct connection to the British Empire, to colonialism, to this kind of image of whiteness. I mean, that is what the royal family does. So it shouldn't really be surprising um, that, that it was that, it, that she had a racist, racist experience while part of the family. That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Check the mic and make sure it sound right, boys. I'm Chris Core, and I'm white. I'm JJ Green, and I'm black. And this is Colors. Well, Chris, we've got another special show. Uh, This, as I've mentioned to you several times in the last few weeks, we keep getting these amazing guests, and we're very fortunate today to have Kyindy Andrews. He's the author of The New Age of Empire, How Racism and Colonialism Still Rule the World. Now, he's a professor of black studies at the Birmingham City University. Uh, in the UK, where he founded and is its current director of the Center for Critical Social Research. He also writes for The Guardian, The Independent, Ebony Magazine, and CNN, and that's where I saw him during an interview. It was about the royal family's scandal right now involving Prince Harry and the Duchess of Sussex, Meghan Markle. And you said, uh, Professor, the one revelation from the Oprah Winfrey show, which most folks have seen if not maybe they've heard about it you said one revelation is that the couple were already married already married only strengthening the understanding of the event of their marriage as a spectacle a made-for-tv special to delude us into believing we were seeing monumental changes but you said the treatment of markle and the bombshells from the interview are an excellent lesson about racism in the uk and the u.s in present day what is that lesson well, yeah, I think the lesson is that things haven't changed as much as we would like to think. And, you know, they got married. Well, the, 
the the wedding actually apparently not the actual wedding but the the marriage for TV was on Malcolm X's birthday and I think Malcolm would have had some strong, strong, quite strong words because sometimes we have the symbols like we like to think things have changed but actually as our experience has shown you know if you're black and even if you're black and really successful in the royal family you're still going to experience racism which may well damage your mental health what does that tell you about the royal family and the institution there because i've been hearing a lot since then about this isn't the royal family this was the institution that said these things have you determined yet who said what and how does the institution differ from the royal family i think it's it's one of those those distinctions which doesn't really matter right like the institution of the royal family and the the actual family and the how they're constituted Aren't a, separate, a, aren't a separate as you'd like to think. And the real issue is, like, what does the monarchy mean? What does it represent? And, you know, for the, what it represents is really in popular culture, like today, a very direct connection to the British Empire, to colonialism, to this kind of image of whiteness. I mean, that is what the royal family does. So it shouldn't really be surprising um, that, that it was that, it, that she had a racist, racist experience while part of the family. Do you do you believe, Professor, that uh, the royal family, either as an institution or as individuals, are racist? Oh, 100 percent. I mean, completely. I mean, I mean, you can actually pick out this. You could pick out individuals in the family. For example, Prince Philip uh, has said so many racist things. They stopped putting him on TV. Right. Uh, the Queen's husband. Uh, was it Princess Anne? One of the one of the family when they first met uh, Meghan Markle, they they decided to wear this massive brooch of a, a blackamoor. Uh, it's like it's huge. It was huge black, like a almost like a gollywog. Uh, do you have gollywog? It's like a, not not a particularly uh, good representation of black people, and chose that to wear on the day she was meeting Meghan Markle. So I think there's actually individual areas where you can say, look, that's problematic. You think but the generally is racist? Hmm? Um, I think the question of whether this person's racist or that person's racist is a uh, is the wrong way to look at it. I mean, what does the royal family stand for? What do they do? The Queen does, you know, parade around in the crown jewels, which are literally stolen from different parts of the empire, and is the head of the Commonwealth, which is a relic of the British Empire. So whether or not she has racist views isn't really the issue. The role of the Queen, of the monarch, is to portray a particular version of, of, of Britishness, which is honestly deeply linked to racism. And that's what I'd like to drill down into, you know, the link to racism, because you said in our communications leading up to this, that there's very little difference between what's happening here in the U.S. and what's going on there. I'd like for you, if you would, to elaborate on that. Um, yeah, so what we see in the U.S., actually, the U.S. is a more extreme version of racism because it really is just like Europe on steroids in many ways. Like, if you look at what the, the U.S. is, and one of the reasons we looked at the U.S. in terms of, like, last summer with the protests of George Floyd and that sparked protests in the U.K., is because of that history of like settler colonialism, quite direct violence in the States, you can see the issues of police brutality more clearly. But in the UK, we have the same issues. It doesn't play out. The police don't carry guns, so you, you don't see it as clearly. But it really is the same kind of difficult relationship with the institutions. If you look at police, education, if you look at the difficulties of the, of the black people when they, they get into the middle class, then there's a very clear uh, correlation between what happens in the UK and what happens in the US. Well, I, I watched every uh, second of the interview with Oprah Winfrey, not because I'm particularly interested in the monarchy. In fact, I don't I think they're silly, but because my wife wanted to watch it. Uh, in fairness to her, her mother is British and so or was British born there uh, and is very interested in it. I, I don't get it. Uh, I do see 
a necessity or at least an appeal for having a head of state independent from head of government for some official acts. So there are monarchies in Denmark and Sweden and Norway and Spain and Portugal, and I'm sure some other countries I'm missing, but they're not in the news all the time. The difference is the royal family in Great Britain is always in the news. Why is that? I think partly it's because of language, right? So, I mean, English is kind of the dominant language um, and that, that matters. I think, I think also it is because of this special relationship to the US, right? So, again, thinking about racism, remember, America starts off as a colony of Britain, so we shouldn't be that surprised that, it, that there's long connections and the kind of experiences are similar. And I think because of that, the US, I mean, it's really it's strange to me that in some ways a lot of the royal stories are bigger in America than they are in the UK. Because I think the symbolism of the of the royal family, the kind of fairy tale, that princess, like, you know, she's a princess joining the family is, is a really a big thing. But on the world stage, I have to be honest, I think the royal family is one of the premier symbols of white supremacy we have in the world, the British royal family in particular. And that is part of its allure. Like, that that fits the narrative of why, why Britain is still dominant culturally in that way. You also mentioned, too, in, in your writing, you wrote that a piece for CNN and you said immigration, a growing black and brown middle class and the emergence of China has helped create a misperception in the West where whiteness is seen as under threat. You know, this is interesting that you make that comment, because here in the U.S. today, um, this 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 being the 11th of March is the day that uh, we're, we're almost beginning the trial of Derek Chauvin, who's the police officer that we all saw kneeling on the neck of George Floyd, which in some ways led to a lot of the attention that exploded last year in the U.S. and around the world. Since that time, a lot of white people have taken steps to make change. And one of our previous guests, who was uh, Shelby Steele, uh, an American scholar on racism said he called it white guilt and he said whites need to get over it. What's your view on that? Um, well, I think, I mean, I think it's interesting that the, the race has become uh, discussed again, right? So after last summer and actually even now with the, with the Royal family. Um, but I think the idea of white guilt is important, um, but I don't, I, I don't know if you could just get over it, right? Cause it is actually about trying to understand how the world is still strong. And the, the problem, I guess, with guilt would be to suggest that this is past and this is kind of finished and we've kind of moved into something different. Uh, when actually, if you look at, I mean, the George Floyd would be a perfect example of where you can still see this plays out today, but there's many other examples as well. So I don't think it's something you want to get over. I think it's, it's and it's, I think it's the idea that we have to understand that racism still shapes what happens today. This, the, the legacies of empire colonialism, racism, they're still very much with us. Let me let me jump in very quickly. A, a, a person that I know who actually heard that interview with Shelby Steele was pretty indignant about it, saying, listen, you know, and this is a white person, a white female. And she said, no, this isn't white guilt. This is being empathetic. This is being concerned, being compassionate, um, being interested in making changes. Uh, I can see that person's view, but I can also see in part what Shelby Steele is trying to say. Well, I think we should. If be, I can, if sorry. I can, if, well, I think what he said, JJ, was that uh, he said, "Get over it. We've won. People care about us now. The white community now understands and cares." So well, I don't know that, if I, I mean, agree that, with that. That was his point. I I don't know if I agree with that though. Yeah, no, I think that would be very. That, that I mean, I think the idea that just because we have attention on the issue of race, 
and racism means that we can move past that now. I think that that is deeply problematic. I think actually the uncomfortable is where we need to be. I mean, that really is where we need to be. I think too often we want to we want to get we want to get past it too quickly. We want to get around it too quickly. And actually, it is deeply uncomfortable. The reality of racism should be deeply uncomfortable. And that that uncomfort discomfort is where we can find new ideas and how to go forward. So no, we definitely shouldn't be trying to move past that. We should be embracing that in many ways. I, if I can get back again, because we have you and uh, Professor Andrews, and you're in uh, England in Birmingham. Um, one of the stories here that we got is about Piers Morgan, uh, who's the host of a morning television show who walked off the stage and was very angry because apparently, uh, I mean, he said things like Meghan Markle was, you know, possibly mentally ill and all that kind of stuff. Is he racist or what? what is his problem? Or was that just a show? I think he lost his job because of what he did. So I can't imagine it was just for show. But what what, what is it with him? Do you know? I've, I've spent uh, maybe too much time with Piers Morgan on that show, and um, it's not new that kind of that kind of aggressive, really um, like troubling rhetoric that comes from him. I think actually one time I was on the show, uh, he basically told me if I don't like it, I should go home. Right? I mean, like this is that that's that that's Piers Morgan. He has a he has a a long history of these kind of things, and in many I, I actually doubt strongly that that he was fired i think he stepped down yeah. uh, because he's kind of it's kind of what he does it's, it's a ratings booster for the for the show um but it is it it's it's interesting that this is the thing actually that's, that's got him to leave right how some of these things become such a spectacle and 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 charge public opinion so much and he would lose his cool because his, his his views were as really abhorrent i don't he wasn't believing her she's putting on it's all fake it's all this and he's been kind of going after Meghan markle quite personally Mm-hmm. Um, for for a while, but is is Piers Morgan racist? Uh, most certainly, <laughs> no doubt about it. Most certainly, mm. if you listen to all his output, uh, absolutely, this was not um, an aberration. This was very much yeah. on brand. Kindy, I'd like to ask this question. Uh, you know, I, I, the royal wedding between uh, Meghan Markle and, and Prince Harry was anything but a show. Uh, you know, thinking that there was this big change. I mean, there were those who were saying, "Okay, this is the step we're taking." A brief, you know, a small step into into the 21st century. But you, from your writing, it seems as though to me you you think we should never have bought into that and should not under any circumstances even now. No, I mean that that I, I spent a lot of time talking at the time, uh, trying to warn against this kind of post racial narrative of that we've kind of moved on. And I think there's there's actually quite a lot of um, comparisons you can make to Obama, right? Uh, the White House, it's historically very white uh, institution, et cetera. You get a black person in there, we think everything's really changed, and then you get Trump afterwards, right? Like, it's it's the perfect reminder that um, just because you have some more representation or just because one person gets in, it doesn't change the nature of what the thing is. So Meghan Markle was never going to change. That is the, the royal fab, like I said, its brand kind of is whiteness. It is a deeply problematic institution, and it, well, she was never going to modernize it. If I can, this is what I got out of the interview with Oprah, uh, and I hadn't thought about it this way before, is that the monarchy needs the tabloids in Great Britain to keep them relevant, and the tabloids need the monarchy to have something to put on page one so people buy their newspapers. Now, if that is the reason that both institutions exist, it's ridiculous because you taxpayers in Great Britain are spending something like $100 million a year, maybe it's more, uh, taking care of this dysfunctional family who doesn't seem to have anything really to do except create headlines for the sun. 
but that's their role. That's how that's, that is literally their role. That's ridiculous. So, what, what, what a waste of, what a waste of, of space and time and effort. Uh, yeah, no, I 100% agree. But I actually think that's why when people say this is a crisis, it's not a crisis at all. This is exactly what keeps the, the royal family yeah. relevant. They're in the press, they're in the news, they're on the tabloids again. It's feeding, it's kind of feeding the beast. And actually, I, I would guess that a large amount of public opinion is very yeah. is more supportive of the monarchy now. But well, you're right, it, it is a complete nonsense, the whole thing. One of the things we like to do on this show is to look at solutions. So do you have a list of solutions or a few solutions or even one solution you would like to suggest today that can remedy all of this uh, first in the UK and then here in the US and perhaps other places? Um, I mean, I think the most simple one would be to use this as a teachable moment. Like, like Honestly, I don't talk really spend much time thinking about the monarchy and I will spend probably less time thinking about Harry and Meghan there. But it is actually a really interesting teachable moment when you, because it does show you what racism looks like, even for people who have wealth, it does show you what the monarchy really is, a deeply problematic colonial institution that needs to be abolished. Um, it should hopefully open this conversation about uh, racism in a, in a different way. And so, I mean, there's there's lots of things to do and this, wouldn't, this doesn't solve everything, but actually a big part of the problem is that we don't understand just how deep the racism is, not just historically, but today, right? The, the monarchy is, racism hasn't end, didn't end with the empire ending, the monarchy's racism still carries on today. And that's also true if you look at around the world and the global economy. It's not an accident that Africa is the poorest part of the world and the white places are the richest part of the world and there's a hierarchy in between. The world is still very much shaped on, on that image of white supremacy. And so the very, very first thing the worst we have to do is to, is to understand that because everything we're taught through the media, through the schools, through everything else is kind of telling us a different thing. And once we actually understand just how deep-seated racism is, then perhaps we can chart a way forward. You said um, also in your book, um, imperialism alive and well uh, in the West, uh, certainly around the world now. And you mentioned um, agencies like the, um, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, the World Trade Organization. And you say even the United Nations are only some of these modern mechanisms of Western imperialism. And all of this is based on racial patriarchy and racial capitalism. Um, what do those who are living in places where this kind of thing exists, not in the U.S., I'm talking, you, you said you're from the Caribbean, uh, and, you know, uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, the British uh, do still rule in some of those places. Um, what do people in those places, what, do they, what, what, what should they do and how can they do anything to deal with this? Um, yeah, this is yeah, it's not a straightforward thing to do, but the key thing here is to understand what the new mechanisms are uh, for Western imperialism. So the whole part of the book is that we're in this new age of empire where you don't have direct European colonization, you don't have slavery anymore, you don't the violence isn't always there, but it has been replaced by institutions like the UN, the World Bank, the Commonwealth actually, which the Queen is still the head of. These are all kind of institutions which are kind of supposedly lending a helping hand to places like Jamaica, where my family's from, et cetera, but actually are, are tools to extract resources and, and maintain the economic dependency of the underdeveloped world. So, I mean, the simple thing would be uh, for people in the underdeveloped world <laughs> to stop using these, to stop, to stop relying on these institutions because they, they don't have their best interests at heart, um, to stop coming to the United Kingdom to do 
development studies, which is essentially working out how to stay an underdeveloped country. I mean, that's not simple, but this, that's the basic solution, is that uh, we need to have alternatives to this and not trying to further embed these countries into, into these economic orders, well, which, which will never I've, do them I've, any good. I've been to Jamaica several times, and one of the stories, and JJ, this is, I think, illustrates it better than anything else. Queen Elizabeth uh, flew into Montego Bay to come and, uh, and visit, pay a visit there. And so they paved the road from the airport to the hotel where she was staying called Half Moon. That's ridiculous. They paved the road from the airport to that resort where her limousine would pull in, and then they didn't pave any more. It was just for her. Now, so they spent a lot of time improving a road for the Queen of England to come in. Um, I mean, that, again, that's sort of the height of silliness. Is, is there going to be a time, Professor Andrews, when these countries in, in the Caribbean, which are part of the Commonwealth, the Queen's picture is on the money, uh, that when they're going to just say, what's the point? I mean, what, in other words, what do they get out? What does Jamaica get out of being part of? What do the British Virgin Islands get out of being part of it? What do Antigua get? What does he get out of being part of the of the uh, Commonwealth? What's the, is there any advantage to it? No, the life is to be honest. I think the uh, the 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 argument is that it's good to have um, a unity of countries, etc. But it's not. It's not. It's not a me. It's mostly symbolic, really. The Commonwealth is, and if you really think about it, it is, it is sort of madness that the Queen is still the head of state of a place like Jamaica, um, which has been independent since the sixties. I mean, Barbados is now talking about removing the Queen uh, from the head as, as the head of state, but that's almost fifty years after independence, and it, and it really does boggle the mind that the Queen is still the head of state. Is still the head of state of all of these countries. And so that and actually the. Go ahead. Hmm? Go ahead, sir. Sorry. No, and, and even you think about the the represent the Queen is meant to represent the Commonwealth. The Commonwealth is majoritarily black and brown people. Like it's like billions of black and brown people, which shows you there's still this really not just economically because that's still there, but even symbolically, the idea that people would, would even be discussing whether the Queen should remain head of state, I think tells you where we are, and it's deeply a deeply problematic place. So let me ask this question: Are we in a as people of color, some of us in a mental prison then when it comes to all this? Oh, 100 percent. A hundred percent. I say whiteness is not just for white people at all, in fact. And it, it is a kind of discourse, narrative way of understanding the world which um, promotes white supremacy and, and has black and brown inferiority. And I think if you're if you're in Jamaica, a predominantly black country and really genuinely believe that the Queen should be a head of state, I think there's something wrong, right? There is there is something seriously wrong there. Um so yeah, whiteness is not just for, for white people. There it is it is a way of understanding the world that too, all too many of us are brought into, I think. Your book, tell me, what would, what would we learn from your book about this situation? How would your book benefit us uh, in dealing with this situation? Yeah, so I think, actually, the Queen does come up, the monarchy actually does come up in this conversation. And the monarchy comes up in this, in the, yeah, because where we are really problematically at the minute is there is this, this really big colonial nostalgia for white supremacy. So in the UK, that plays out as we want to return back to the good old days when, you know, Britannia ruled the waves and there was no immigration from the colonies. And this is it. We just we just had the Britain just left the European Union largely because of that. Take back control. And if you think about the states, what what does it that leads to Trump? Trump's make America great again or make America white again. There is this kind of yearning for the good old days of, of empire, the first version of empire where things were a lot, a lot simpler. And if you think about the, the monarchy, the reason why it's so the reason why it is so popular, the reason why it doesn't actually play any positive role in social life, but is so important, is because it really is a throwback 
to that old age of empire, to that colonial nostalgia. Uh, most of the people who live in the United Kingdom believe that the British Empire was a force for good. And if you think about the, the idea of the, the monarchy across the world, you've got the crown, you've got things like Bridgerton. I think it's generally ex- accepted as being a re- relatively positive thing. And this is honestly, the, if you want to shake our way out of the delusions where we're in, this is quite a good place to start. Um, so yeah, the book kind of traces this, but really gives quite a lot of detail about you know slavery, colonialism, genocide, just how deeply they were a part of building what we have, and also how that logic of um, white supremacy hasn't gone anywhere. Like nine million people die every year through because of the, because of poverty, and almost all of them are black and brown and live in the underdeveloped world. So the world hasn't changed anywhere near as much as we would like to think. How long before? How long does the monarchy last from here forward? I think the British monarchy will last for for a long time. Uh, is it Prince William is really popular. I, I don't think it's going anywhere. Honestly, the tradition, the symbolic role, it, it's it's doing what it's supposed to do, and this supposed crisis just reinforces its role. I can't see any any prospect of the British monarchy going anywhere. Although, they, although they're they're talking about a slimmed down monarchy, so maybe there won't be so many <laughs> yeah. active royals and who are on uh, the British payroll. The austerity came to the monarchy, I guess. But well, it was still yeah, there. a form of austerity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it will still be there. We just, just like we did that. It's not, and the monarchy is all tied up with the not returning the jewels and the, the crown to other parts of the world. Um, it's not going to do it. No, the, the, the queen, the monarchy, the monarch is such a central part of British identity. And, and like I said, we just had Brexit. We are not getting better. We're actually getting worse. The image of like, the kind of narrow version of Englishness, Britishness has made a massive resurgence in the last few years. So the, the prospects of the, I think we're, if, actually, if you ask this question 20 years ago, I think they'd be much more likely that we'd get rid of the monarchy. Mm-hmm. But where we are now, it's, it's gone the other way. Gotcha. Well, Professor Kayindi Andrews, this has been a supreme pleasure. Thank you for taking time to talk with us about these issues and, of course, cluing us into what is actually happening in the UK, because people here can't believe that this is going on, that this this scandal has erupted. But thank you for for clarifying it all. (laughs) No worries. Happy to to help. And I'll say thank you to Oprah Winfrey for the interview. It was a great interview. Yeah. Yes, it was. You're listening to Colors. My name is Sue Ann Lee. I live in the D.C. area and I'm Korean American. My social media posts typically are pretty light. A picture of my kids or a fun family event. Not this week. Today, my heart is filled with a lot of sadness as the hate crimes against Asian Americans have again been on the rise. I've had to have recent conversations with my 10 and 12 year old about why this is happening We had these conversations back in March 2020 um, when the pandemic first hit, when my 10-year-old daughter experienced seeing her Asian-American best friend being blamed for the coronavirus, and myself having racial slurs thrown at me and being told it was my fault that this pandemic happened. All this happened while I was shopping at Target, and Target was my happy place. Hate crimes against Asian Americans have increased by 150% in 2020. Many of these racial attacks have happened to the elderly who can't protect themselves and who can't report it because they can't speak English properly. But I also take pause and my heart is also filled with appreciation. Seeing friends of all different ethnicities raise awareness around this issue. Having friends reach out to me and simply ask if I'm doing okay. 
seeing hashtag Stop Asian Hate posted on LinkedIn and across my social media has helped me be bold enough to also post about the sad reality. I know racial discrimination won't end tomorrow, but having the conversation and being educated is one place we can start today. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Well, that was a great interview with uh, Professor Andrews, JJ. Thank you very much for getting him. A, a, a different perspective from the other side of the world. So I, we're, we're expanding our horizons, aren't we? Literally and figuratively. <laughs> we absolutely are. JJ, as, as we're recording this, um, the trial of Derek Chauvin. Am I saying his name right? Is that how people say it? Chauvin? Yeah. Chauvin. yeah. Chauvin, okay. Um, the, the officer accused of murdering George Floyd. That trial has not started yet. But there are some things we already know. Here's what we know. We know that it is difficult to prosecute, successfully prosecute a police officer, particularly in a murder charge. It's the nature of the job that the police officer does what he thinks is necessary to keep control. So it's difficult. That's that's a fact. That's not an opinion. Um, they the uh, prosecution will bring up the fact that we don't have any video before we see the officer kneeling on George Floyd's neck. So we don't know if anything provoked it. Um, I think they've done a toxicology test on George Floyd and found that he had drugs in his system. If I'm wrong, I'll, I'll take that back. But I think that's accurate. Uh, and we know that he did have at one point a criminal record. Now, you bring all these things together and you're trying to get a police officer convicted. What happens? Because it's possible. What happens if he's found not guilty? I don't know what would happen if he's found not guilty. A lot's changed since last summer. A lot of things have taken place on the political level. A lot's taken place on the cultural and social level. But I don't think that there is a person in this country that believes that he won't be found guilty. And I'm just saying this based on what we have seen. Of course, you know, that's what trials are for. And he deserves a trial. But George Floyd didn't get one, you know. And I I have to wonder if there are people on the jury that are going to think that way. And so I, I honestly don't know what will happen if he's not, if he's, if he's, if he's found not guilty. I, I, I mean, the reason I, so I also believe he'll be found guilty of something. They've now tacked on a third degree murder charge. So, so it's a lesser sentence. I think they did that out of worry that they weren't going to get one of the other charges against him uh, successfully. Um, prosecuted. Um, so they're going to try, you know, so now they're doing the third degree to try to do something. I, I, I agree with you. I think he probably will be found guilty of one of those charges may not satisfy people. Uh, but I will say uh, there is a chance that he will be found not guilty because again, the, you know, the lawyers that are going to defend the the, the police department are going to be very good and very schooled uh, at how they approach the jury and say, look, no matter what you think, you've got to know without a shadow of doubt, without you know any doubt at all, that this, in fact, happened exactly as uh, as his as uh, Mr. Floyd's lawyers uh, are laying out. 
And here are some reasons maybe it didn't. I mean, you can you can plant enough doubt in that that it's possible. I, I, I don't know. I think if he's found if they're found not guilty, I think you'll see rioting again in Minneapolis and all over the country, the likes of which, uh, well, I guess the likes of which we already saw last year. That is my opinion. Does the country does the country have the energy for that? The anger for that? The yes. energy. No, the energy. Yeah, I know I heard you say energy, but the anger. Yes. I, I mean, I hope I, I not much gets accomplished uh, from another series of riots, except perhaps more crackdowns. But um, this has been building to a head and it, it exploded because of George Floyd. But it started, I mean, way before that. I mean, I, I started with Trayvon Martin, maybe, um, you know, I mean, it just this has been a series of things where uh, young black people have been killed in case of uh, Trayvon Martin. He was killed by a, a citizen um, for I don't, under that, what stand your ground law or something like that. Yeah. Um, so it's going on and on and on. And I think this was just, the, this was the final thing. It was just like, okay, this is it. Um, so I do, I, I agree with you. I think there's a, there, there's a certain uh, exhaustion with this. Um, and if the officer, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, 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 I fear that if the, if he's found not guilty, that there will be a, a, a strong, strong reaction. That's my opinion. Well, I guess my question about that then is this is if he's found not guilty based on what we saw, I mean, does our justice system need to be looked at? Well, he had a lot of drugs in, in him and he was really fighting me. And you didn't see what happened beforehand when he provoked me and said all kinds of things about what he was going to do to me. So I just had to make sure that he understood that that he had to calm down because, I mean, I, I, I can understand what the testimony would be. I don't know that they'll call uh, Derek Chauvin to the, you know, to the stand. They probably won't. They usually don't. But the his lawyers will, will present that case. I mean, that's what they're we already know. That's what they're going to say. And then we'll see what the jury thinks. It depends on how they lay it out. It depends on the lawyers. A lot of this, you know, it doesn't even have to do with the facts. It has to do with how good the lawyers are. Yeah. Well, also, yeah, you know, specifically the the, the lawyers on the other side too. You know, because um, oh yeah, they're uh, right. That's they, what I'm saying. Both they, both they, sets of lawyers, and yeah. they know the whole world's watching. So right. uh, this is probably the biggest trial in terms of the world watching since O.J. Simpson. I was about to say, this is the trial of this century. Yeah. Yes, it is. I'm J.J. Green, and I'm black. I'm Chris Kaur, and I'm white. And this is Colors. Coming up in our next episode of Colors. Is it offensive to you, personally, just you, that a team, a hockey team in Chicago is called the Blackhawks or that there is an automobile called the Jeep Cherokee? I support whatever the tribes involved in those issues want to do about that. His name is John Echo Hawk. He's a member of the Pawnee community in Oklahoma. He's also executive director of the Native American Rights Fund. And whatever those tribes want to do about that, I support. He's an attorney. And if you're expecting someone to scream injustice, this is not that interview. Mr. If it's something like Indian Rocks, Florida, which is a city right up the coast from where I am, that, that name's no tribe. Is is that a name that should be changed? Uh, well, it depends on the, uh, the tribes in that area. Again, it's a sovereignty issue, tribal sovereignty. Each tribe decides these issues. 
What Mr. Echo Hawk does do is he tells us what the right thing to do is, and we got a tremendous history lesson on Native American culture, too. That's coming up in our next episode of Colors. If you would like to contact us, we'd appreciate any suggestions for guests, uh, topic ideas, um, criticism you have of the program, of the podcast. You can write to us at thecolorspodcast at gmail.com. As we go, we want to say thank you to you. Mike Jakaitis, Hillary Howard, Mara Moran, Jamie Stockwell, Rita Steele, Julia Ziegler, Joel Oxley, Sean Anderson, Dimitri Sotis, James Brown, Serbino Sanderford Walker, Tamika Ojor, Jason Richardson, Kevin Stanfield, Jamal Bowens. A special shout out to the entire Asian community all over the world. Jesse Gallagher for the music, Cosmic for the music, Off Shane for the music, and most of all, a gigantic thank you to you for listening to us. And finally, just remember, keep talking to each other. And just as important, keep listening to each other. You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.